Uh, listen, if you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2. This morning we're continuing our series where we're looking at the seven churches of the book of Revelation. We kicked things off last week with an introductory sermon. We looked at how Jesus appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. Jesus commanded John to write a letter to seven different congregations, the letter that we now know as the book of Revelation. Well, this morning we'll begin by looking at the first of these congregations. That would be the church in Ephesus. So let's get into our text together. Once again, it's Revelation chapter 2. We'll read the first seven verses of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember from our sermon last week, the seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches, which are the seven pastors of these seven congregations. And the seven golden lampstands represent the congregations themselves. And so Jesus says to this congregation in Ephesus, starting in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had it first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Based on these verses that we just read together, I want to begin by asking you a question. Now, let me... Let me preface the question by saying this. Given this group of people in this room, this is one of those questions that may be so obvious, so rudimentary, that it feels strange to even have to ask it. But I think that once you hear the question, you'll recognize something. You'll recognize that once you start peeling back the layers of your own heart, once you start examining what's going on inside of you, this question is not as straightforward as we might assume. So here's the question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? I think the vast majority of us 
would be tempted to rattle off an easy yes to that question. But I, I want us to not do that. I, I want us to slow down for a moment here and think carefully about how we might answer this question. Because here's the thing. I've learned that sometimes when people say that they love Jesus, what they really mean is that they love the idea of him. Jesus is a comforting thought. Jesus helps us to make sense of life. Or maybe it's this, maybe following the example of Jesus helps to make us better people. I've also learned that sometimes when people say they love Jesus, what they really love is the experience of him. Maybe maybe this is the case for you. Maybe you, you love those epic moments in the worship service, right? Where the music is just right. Where every hand is in the air. Where every face is wearing a euphoric expression. Many Christians go through life seeking out mountaintop experiences so that they can maintain some semblance of a spiritual high. Another thing I've learned is that sometimes when people say they love Jesus, what they really love are the gifts that he gives. You know, following Jesus can be hard. It can be difficult. It can be trying. But it also has its benefits and its blessings. When we follow Jesus, for instance, it gives us a sense of purpose in life. I think I remember somebody writing a book about that once. Something about a purpose-driven life. It sold a few copies. But really, it's because there's something to that, isn't there? It, it, it's true that Jesus gives us a reason to get out of bed in the morning, and that's a powerful thing. Another benefit or blessing of following Jesus is that it can furnish our lives with meaningful relationships. Some of the closest, most significant relationships I have in my life are because I am a Christian. Having a purpose in life, having significant relationships in our lives, these are good gifts that Jesus gives us, and we love them, but we should not confuse them with loving Jesus himself. Now, I'm not bringing all this up to cast doubt on your love for Jesus. I don't mean to make you question the assurance of your own salvation. It's not my intention. I would never want to do that. Instead, the reason I'm asking you if you love Jesus today is to demonstrate that the question itself is more complicated than first meets the eye. It's a lot like when I visit the art museum here in Kansas City. I can walk up to a painting and to me it seems pretty straightforward. Like to my untrained eye, I'm like, okay, I'm looking at this painting. And it's pretty much just a picture of a guy sitting in a chair. And this is because I'm an idiot when it comes to art. I come from a long line of hillbillies. High culture is not our jam. But when I read the little description on the plaque 
hanging on the wall there next to the painting, when I read about the subtleties and the nuances and the details that that little plaque explains to me, when I read about all of that, I am able to look at the painting much more closely. And I see that the artist who made the painting is using light and color to communicate something. The artist is using the expression on the man's face to convey something to the viewer. And so come to find out, there's a lot more going on in this painting than a guy just sitting in a chair. Well, our text does something similar for us today. In the passage we looked at last week, we journeyed through John's portrayal of the majesty of the exalted Christ. You might think of John as an artist who paints a picture for us of who Jesus is. And the picture that John paints is arresting in its glory. It is absolutely stunning in its grandeur. But in this text that we're looking at this week, It's almost like we're looking down at that little description, that little plaque on the wall that helps us to diagnose the subtleties and the nuances and the details of how our hearts are responding to the glory of Christ. And it does that by presenting us with a question. It's the question I've already asked you. It's the same question that Jesus asks Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Hey, Peter, do you love me? Emmaus, do you love him? Here's the big takeaway today. I want you to walk away this morning realizing that to love Christ, we must love him supremely. To love Christ, we must love him Supremely. Loving Jesus doesn't mean that we love him as one thing among many others. He's not just another item on the list of things that you care about. Jesus is not interested in receiving your leftovers. He is not interested in my half-hearted obedience. No, to love Jesus, we must love him differently than we love everything else. To borrow from jazz legend John Coltrane, we must love Jesus with a love supreme. That's how he invites us to love him today. So let's examine our passage together. We'll consider three insights from the text. These are three insights concerning the dynamics of our love for Jesus. Here's the first of these three insights. Love for Christ can subtly wane. Love for Christ can subtly wane. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Things start out really well for the church at Ephesus. Jesus says he knows their works. He has been watching them carefully. He has been examining the things that they are devoting their time and their attention to. And just notice something, that there is a lot here to commend. Jesus praises them for their toil and their patient endurance. He praises them for being serious about holiness. He says, you don't tolerate those who are evil. 
And Jesus even names a specific instance of this. He says, you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. You have found them to be liars. So there were some false teachers who had infiltrated the church in Ephesus, and those who were true believers there in Ephesus, they were able to sniff out the falseness of these false teachers, these false apostles and their lies. And so what this tells us is that these Christians that Jesus is speaking to, these are not theological lightweights. These are people who know their stuff. These believers are astute, they're discerning, and they are willing to take a courageous stand for sound doctrine. We know that they're not just theologically serious, they're also tough, right? They're resilient. This is why in verse 3, Jesus commends their patient endurance a second time. He uses the exact same word twice. In order to emphasize just how resilient these believers are, Jesus is pleased that they have thick skin. He says, you guys are hanging in there for for my name's sake. You are not growing weary in that. And I see you. I see your endurance. I see your patience. I see your resilience. So you read all of what we've covered so far in this passage. And you're like, wow, the church at Ephesus is crushing it. I mean, they they have figured out the secret of being an awesome church. Like if you you stop reading at verse 3, Jesus has just given them a five-star review on Google. I mean, it really must pay in the eyes of Jesus to have thick skin, wouldn't you say? Not so fast. Look back at verse 4. This is a turning point in the passage. He says, you guys are getting all these things right. And that's great. But I have one thing against you. You have abandoned. You have abandoned your first love. The Ephesians may have had thick skin, and that's all well and good. But what they needed most was a tender heart toward the Lord. For all they had gotten right, they were drifting away from the one thing that mattered. And the scariest thing of all is that they didn't even know it. They they didn't even realize that it was happening to them. Friends, I don't know about you, but that is a terrifying thought. It terrifies me to think that we as a church could get so many things right. We could get our doctrine right. We can have a compelling vision. We can preach great sermons. We can have effective ministries. We can sing beautiful songs. We can have welcoming community groups. We can do all these things and more, and yet in the middle of all of that, we can miss the point entirely. We can have so much going for us and still not have a love supreme. Many commentators point out that when John talks about the Ephesians abandoning their first love, what he has in mind is not only vertical love, you know, love between you and Jesus. He certainly is talking about that, but what John also is, what he also has in mind is horizontal love. That's love between you 
and another person. And this makes sense, I think, because just remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. One of the Pharisees comes and they ask Jesus, of all the commandments in the law, which one is the greatest? Jesus, which one is the most important? I want to know. You guys know what Jesus says. You know how he answers. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the second is closely related to it. Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two things cannot be disconnected from each other. You cannot disconnect having Jesus as your first love from loving other people. And this makes me think that one of the problems that the Ephesians had was that in their defense of the faith, maybe they had become unloving. Maybe in their zeal for the truth, they had lost compassion for people. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? I mean, the way that we in the church talk about and, and treat our fellow Christians. The thoughts that we harbor in the secret of our hearts about our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we get on social media and make a performance out of blasting our theological and political opponents. Don't you think that just maybe what all of that means is that our love for Jesus has waned? Let it not be lost on us how subtly we can drift away from love supreme. It can be almost imperceptible. In fact, it can happen when we look like we are at our best. I mean, just look at the Ephesians. By all appearances, they were pretty impressive. They looked pretty good. But the one who can see past appearances like the one who could see to the heart of things, he was not impressed. He says, I have this against you, that you have waned in your love for me, and you didn't even know it. But here's the thing about Jesus, is he doesn't leave us where he finds us. When we are blind to what is going on in our lives, he does not leave us in our blindness. He's not some cold, distant critic who only shows up often enough to point out what we're doing wrong. Now, even when we've abandoned him, he takes a step toward us. He moves toward his people, which is why he offers to the Ephesians a way out of their lovelessness. And this brings us to the second insight from our passage today. That love for Christ, when it has waned, must be restored through remembrance, repentance, and returning. Just notice what Jesus tells the Ephesians in verse 5. He says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and return to doing the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You guys, I cannot think of a warning that is more serious for a church than this. This is sobering. The stakes could not be higher. I mean, Jesus is writing to this pastor and his congregation, and he is warning them that if something does not change, if they do not change their ways, he is going to close their doors for good. 
How many churches close their doors every year? And how many of those churches close their doors because they have waned in their love for Jesus and they never repented? And it's easy to think, ah, that'll never happen to us. Come on, we're Emmaus. We're a great church. You guys are. This is a wonderful church. I love pastoring you. In fact, pastoring you guys, I feel like I get to wake up every day and be in the Super Bowl. But hear me when I say this. The moment we start presuming that we're A-OK might just be the moment that we find ourselves in a very dangerous place. In order for a church like us to not lose its way, we need to constantly be rekindling our love for Christ. And Jesus gives us three ways to do that. He tells us repent, or I'm sorry, he tells us remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Look at each of these with me. First, look at remembrance. If there is any sense that you have been waning in your love for Jesus, he tells you remember from where you have fallen. Think back to what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus. Think back to when you first realized his love for you. Your heart burned with affection for him. You marveled at his person and his work and his glory. You searched his word with great eagerness and great diligence. You spent time abiding with Jesus in prayer. The minutes would just pass by and you didn't even realize it because you were just so lost in your communion with him. But now all these things, reading the word, meditating on Christ, praying, these things have just become commonplace. Maybe for you, they have lost their luster. You aren't stirred for him like you once were. A moment ago, I quoted John Coltrane. Now let me quote another musical legend, B.B. King, who once sang, the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. Perhaps that's how you would describe your Christian life right now. For you, the thrill of knowing Jesus has evaporated. It has vanished. Just listen to what one commentator says. He describes this when he writes, Perhaps with the increased burden of responsibility in life or foolish tolerance of sin or worldly influences, we just do not find ourselves drawing near to the Lord as we once did. We have not turned from the faith and we are still performing our Christian duties. But from Jesus' perspective, it is obvious that our first love has grown dim, perhaps replaced with lesser, more worldly, priorities. I wonder if that sounds familiar to some of us. Can you relate to that? I know that there have definitely been seasons in my own life where I can relate to what was just described. And if that's the case for us, then the place we need to start is with remembrance. Go back to where it all began and remember what it was like when you first fell head over heels in love with the person of Jesus Christ. We also need to repent. We not only need to go back to the start in our imaginations, we, we also need to turn back to Jesus in our heart of hearts. 
Jesus mentions this two times in verse 5. He emphasizes repentance because repentance is absolutely essential to the Christian life. Martin Luther, the reformer, 500 years ago, put his 95 theses up on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And here's the first thing he said. He said, when our Lord and master told us to repent, he meant that the entire life of the believer should be a life of repentance. And it's true. It's true. That's what Jesus tells us. He preached on those dusty roads of Galilee and his message was this. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And listen, friends, Jesus's message to us today has not changed. He is still commanding our repentance. He is still calling each one of us to take decisive action, to uproot those things out of our lives that have caused our love for him to grow dim. What might that look like for you? What is it that has entered your life and has caused your love for Jesus to wane? Could it be that he is calling you this morning to turn away from that so that you can return to him? And that's the third thing that Jesus mentions. He says, we need to return. Return to doing the works you did at first. Go back to basics, simple obedience, simple devotion, simple discipleship to Jesus. Friends, returning to the Lord is the follow-through of our repentance. We don't just turn away from sin. We don't just turn away from a lack of love for Jesus. We also turn toward him. We orient our lives to him to demonstrate That he is our first love. We love him the way he wants us to love him. And how does he want us to love him? Tells his disciples in the gospel of John. If you love me. You will keep my commandments. It's as simple as that friends. We love Jesus by obeying him. That's how we demonstrate that he is our first love. I don't want you to mishear me. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that we obey in order to earn God's love. God's love does not depend on your obedience. And this is good news because it means that if you are in Christ, God does not love you more when you obey And he does not love you less when you disobey because his love is not rooted in you. It's rooted in him. It's rooted in his unchanging nature and character. This is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 103 that God does not deal with us according to our sins. And he does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward us. Did you catch that? His love for you is a steadfast love. His love for you does not fluctuate based on the situation at hand. His love for you does not diminish when you fail. And his love for you does not increase when you are successful. Instead, the love of God is something that you can count on no matter what. Because God's love 
is as God himself. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the question is not whether Jesus loves you. That question is already settled. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. There's nothing you can do to unearn his love. The question instead is, will you love him? Will you love Jesus? Will you obey him to show him once again that he is your first love? Will you overcome in keeping his command? Here's the third insight. Love for Christ is a gift that overcomes. It's a gift that overcomes. Look back at the last few sentences of our passage, starting in verse 6. Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans. He says to the church in Ephesus, there's one thing you have going for you. You hate the works of those Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, Jesus says something. That we'll hear him say over and over again to each of the seven churches. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus ends with this. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what does all of this mean? In verse 6, you've got Jesus talking about the Nicolaitans. Who on earth are they? And then in verse 7, you've got Jesus giving this promise about eating from a tree, what on earth is that about? How do these things fit together? Believe it or not, they do. They fit together. Let me give you some of the backstory about the Nicolaitans. They were a group of heretics who spun off from the church. They were known for their excessive hedonistic lifestyle. We know this because the Nicolaitans are actually mentioned outside of the New Testament. There's an early church leader named Irenaeus who wrote about them. Here's what Irenaeus has to say. He says that the Nicolaitans are the followers of Nicholas, who was one of the seven first ordained to be deacons in the book of Acts. Irenaeus says that they live lives, the Nicolaitans live lives of unrestrained indulgence, and they devote themselves to practices such as idolatry and adultery. So Nicholas, just like the Ephesians, he started off so well, didn't he? He was a deacon of the church in Jerusalem. His name is listed in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. But at some point, he lost his first love and he never repented. And he left the church. He became a heretic. And he garnered for himself a group of heretical followers. But what's interesting is not just who Nicholas was. What's also interesting is his name, what his name means. The name Nicholas is derived from two Greek words that when you put them together mean conqueror of the people. Conqueror of the people. That's what Nicholas means. And in verse 7, Jesus uses the first of these two words when he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life. So there's this sort of play on words that's happening in the Greek that ties Jesus' statement about the Nicolaitans in verse 6 to his promise to the church in verse 7. 
It's like Jesus is saying, the Nicolaitans, they claim to be conquerors, right? They're conquerors of the people. But that's not who they are. No, only those who are truly my people will conquer in the end. And church, let's not forget why that's true. We are more than conquerors in Christ. That's that's true. But that's not true because we're all that great. It's not because of us. It's not sourced in us. If anything, this passage that we've been looking at today shows us that even at our very best, even at the very best we can do, we still fall dreadfully, dreadfully short. Which means that the only way that we can conquer is because we belong to the one who is the conqueror. The only reason we can overcome is because our life is found in the one who said, take heart. For I have overcome the world. Everything we have, everything we are, every promise that we hold dear, all of it is a gift that we have received from him. We bring nothing to the table but sin and guilt and shame. The lights went out right at that point because it's a dark reality that I'm describing to you. (laughs) Try to redeem that moment. But that's all that we bring to the table. We don't bring any worthiness to Jesus. We don't walk up to him with hands filled with our accomplishments. And apart from his grace, we don't stand a chance of being anything other than a wretched, defeated sinner. But scripture tells us that God, Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, Emmaus, you have been saved through faith. And because of this, what God has done for you is he has raised you up with Christ. He has seated you victoriously in heavenly places so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace toward you in Christ. This is not what Jesus has promised here in our passage. We are more than conquerors, not because of our own strength, but through him who loved us. And because this is true, we have the promise that we will forever and ever get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is like Jesus is telling us, do you remember the story that you heard in Sunday school growing up, the story of Adam and Eve? Do you remember what it was like for them before the serpent came and began to spoil everything? Can you imagine the unbroken communion with God that they enjoyed? Can you imagine the joy that they experienced, the love that they shared, the peace that they had? Jesus is saying, I'm going to restore all of that. I'm going to bring all of it back because for anyone who conquers in my name, I will give them this garden paradise. I will set them at rest in the shade of that tree and from its leaves will come healing for the whole world. And on that day, from that tree of life, I will feed my people with the eternal riches of my grace. But this time, nothing will take it away. Nothing will spoil it. No serpent will enter there. 
Because all darkness will finally, at long last, be vanquished by my all-conquering love. And friends, the glory of that promise that we've received, it's not our own doing. Let me say it again. It's a gift of God. So that none of us can boast. And I'm telling you that the only reason that we can love The only reason that we can hear a passage like this and respond with longing to love Jesus more, the only reason for any of it is because, well, we read it earlier. He first loved us. Long before you could sense even an inkling of love for Jesus, he set his sights upon you in love. And so with all this in mind, let me ask you once more. Emmaus, do you love him? Knowing him, knowing who he is and what he has done, knowing how much he has promised, do you love Jesus with a love supreme? Will you have him and him alone as your first love? As I conclude today, I want to set before you three diagnostic questions that I pray will help you assess your own love for Christ. There are plenty of questions we could ask ourselves, plenty of ways that we could examine our own hearts, but I pray that these questions will get you started as you discern what's going on inside of you. So here are the three questions. Question number one, how is your prayer life? Are you regularly slowing down And spending unhurried time lifting your heart to God in prayer. As you encounter challenging moments throughout the course of your day, are you breathing a prayer of dependence upon Christ? Is that your gut reaction to hard things? What about this? Do you ever spontaneously break out into a worship song? I'm not talking about singing in church. I know we all do that. You guys sing really well. But what I'm talking about is does the thought of Christ, when it crosses your mind, does it ever prompt a song of praise in your heart? When was the last time you lingered at his feet? I'm not talking about checking off a box on your Bible reading plan. I'm not talking about praying through the next items on today's prayer list. Those things are great. We need those disciplines. They help us. But this is not about being in his presence so that we can get something done. This is about being in his presence for its own sake. So that's the first question. How's your prayer life? Second question. Are there any areas of your life where you are delaying obedience? You know that God is calling you to do something. You know that he is calling you to take a step with him, but you've been dragging your feet because you're afraid of what it might cost. You're afraid of what you are at risk of losing. Or maybe there's something that you've been doing in secret that you know grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Some sin in your life that you've been downplaying your need to repent of it. You've been excusing it, justifying it, minimizing it so that you can continue on as if nothing is wrong. If that's the case for you, 
I want to admonish you. Don't put it off any longer. Don't wait anymore, friends. Get with God as soon as you can and decisively crucify that sin because it'll stand between you and the Lord. And the longer you allow it to go on, the more it will stand between you and the Lord. It'll get worse and worse and worse. Just look at Nicholas. Here's the third question. Who is Jesus hearing about from you? You know, some weeks ago, we introduced our share and invite initiative. We did this because we want you to have a way to engage the lost people in your life. And listen, we can talk about that over and over again. We can go on and on about it until we're blue in the face, but it really won't matter until Jesus Christ is the first love of this church. That's what will get us talking about Jesus with other people. You guys, I believe that for the church in our time, for this church, for me and for you individually, one of the greatest barometers of our love for Jesus is how much we are talking to lost people about him. When we love Jesus with a love supreme, you can't get us to shut up. You can't get us to shut up about Jesus. A love supreme looks like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 where they say, you can threaten us, you can mock us, you can make fun of us, you can even kill us. Do what you have to do. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And we will even count it our joy to be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Friends, only a love supreme can say that. That's the kind of love that Jesus wants from us. To love him, we must love him supreme. Church, I want to take just a moment. Let's go before the Lord together in prayer. Would you bow your head with me? Lord Jesus, we know that you loved us first. When we were dead in our sins, you set your eyes upon us in love. You died on the cross for us when we wouldn't even lift a finger to love you. And because of that, you invite us into the greatest adventure of all. We get to follow you as our first love. If there's anything standing in the way of that, Lord, give us grace and courage to confront it through remembrance, repentance, and returning. Help us to do these things by the power of your spirit. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.